Hi, this is Ronnie Littlejohn, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. I know your love of music started really early. Very early. Yeah. I presume your parents had something to do with that? My mother. I grew up with my mother, a uh, single mother, and she had everything to do with it. Uh, she, there was always music playing around the house all the time. Right. And, uh, remember that song Misty Blue by Dorothy Moore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was on just repeat. <laughs> and I remember listening to this music as a kid, um, well, when she, when she, to get deeper, when she broke up with my, uh, with my father, when they split up, I was about, oh, maybe four, I'd say four. And there was a record that they always played at dinner when they were in love. You know what I mean? It was Paul Anka. And the album was called Anka, and it came out in 1974. So I guess in the time, it, was, it had Having My Baby, mm-hmm. uh, a song called Papa, all these love songs, beautiful love songs, beautiful arrangements. And it was recorded in Muscle Shoals. I didn't know that until uh-huh. recently. Anyway, so that album was always playing around the house. And uh, then they broke up as some people do and there was a Saturday afternoon and uh, they were packing their things and my mother and I were getting our own place and they weren't talking it was just like you see in the movies it was pretty horrible Uh, and I found this album that they used to listen to at the dinner table as we would listen to as a family and I remember as a little child looking up the flight of stairs because they were upstairs packing and I said does anyone want this record and they both said no. <laughs> and I remember as a four-year-old uh, being a little intuitive, but being slightly crushed and wondering, like, this little item, this little record that meant so much to you, now neither one of you want anything to do with it. So I took that record, and uh, I listened to that record religiously. Paul Anka, all the songs, and I, th- and I listened to those records, and I... Th- thought by listening to these songs about these adult situations that that would help me understand what happened between my mother and my father it never did right but yes I listened to music extremely early and I took it in heavily uh, the first song I ever heard was Louis Prima doing uh, in, in uh, the jungle book he was uh, King Louis right. king of the king of the jungle or whatever you know I want to be like you that guy I didn't know that was Louis Prima from New Orleans when I was four years old. I yeah. just loved his voice. You know what I mean? So you connected with New Orleans immediately. Without realizing it. Yeah, it was the beat. It just it was just in me. So, okay, when you listen to that album now... Yeah, oh God, you can smell like the, the, the room. It takes me right back. That's the power of music. It's yeah. insane. Sorry, I cut you off. No, Is that but where I, you were yeah, going a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, that's that's a powerful album. You know, people on social media always post, "Oh, I've been nominated to post ten albums that I love." That has probably been the most influential album to me. And not uh, when I play music, like, okay, let's make it sound like this Paul Anka album. I mean, just that makes made me realize the power of music, like maybe no other album, just because of the circumstances of the time. Although, as as a young kid listening to that, I can't imagine what that did to your mom, who was probably in the other room hearing it. Yeah, now it's funny you say that because she must have heard me playing that and she must have thought like, and it's funny, once you have children, you look at your own, you see your parent, your own parents differently. Yeah. You don't know your own parents until you have children. So I can't imagine if she did hear me, uh, why the hell is my six-year-old playing Paul Anka? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, that was just my way. I actually loved the songs. I learned all the music, not to play it, but I knew all the notes. I knew all the lyrics. I was harmonizing with it. So, uh, you know, if it wasn't that, it would have been something else, you know. And there were other albums, too. It was Sean Cassidy, that son of a bitch. I wrote him a letter, a love letter. I was in Wait love with second. Sean Cassidy. Sean Cassidy. Remember Sean Cassidy? Yeah. As a, a, you know, I was in love uh, with him as a, as a five-year-old boy to a grown man. It was a little creepy. I guess I was a fan, but I thought I loved him. So I wrote him, uh, not an email, a letter in little kid writing. He never got back to me. Who doesn't write back to a five-year-old kid? Really? Sean Cassidy. What's your, well, if I think you're he listening, has some issues, what the hell's though. with that? Didn't he have issues? Did he? I, I had issues. I don't know if Sean Cassidy did. 
Well, I just said to you before we started rolling tape, this room's beautiful, this couch, I feel like I'm at my, my psychiatrist's office. This is beautiful. You make me so you relaxed. This, you bring up this Sean Cassidy thing. I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, we're going to go deep. Yeah, today. Well, now like, we've been, I've been here for five minutes. I'm already on about Sean Cassidy. Is, I, strangely enough, I've done like 200 interviews in yeah. this podcast, and yeah. his name has never come up before. There you go. Yeah, so nice. we're done. Thanks for listening. <laughs> We covered all the meat of it, Sean Cassidy. <laughs> um, just based on what you've said, yes. music was a big part. You probably dug into re- buying records very quickly or early mm. in your life. Tell me, tell me what when that occurred. And uh, well, I mean, I was buying forty fives, right? Everybody remember forty fives? I bought forty fives. I'd go to the Don Mills record store. And I'd have the they'd have the 1050 Chum Top 30 charts, mm-hmm. and 45s were uh, two dollars, and uh, that's when it started. And then it went to albums. I remember one day I found ten dollars on the ground, and I said, "I'm gonna buy my first album. I can afford an album." And it was about seven, six or seven bucks, and I must have spent two hours in the record store. And a, a dear friend of mine, she said to me, "Listen, I know you like this rock and roll stuff." But I know I can tell where you're going. She said, you, uh, you need to buy a Muddy Waters album and you need to buy an Isley Brothers album. She said, trust me, I know, I know you, you're going to love it. So I, I listened to what she said. I went to the record store. Her name was Veronica, Veronica Nass, an amazing lady. And she, uh, I went there and I had my money. So I went to the Muddy Waters section and there, I didn't know anything about Muddy Waters. I was just a little kid, maybe 12. Right. And, uh. I said, okay, and I'm looking at all these Muddy Waters albums, and they were all exactly the amount of money I had. I looked at every song name, every album cover, which one seems the saddest, which one seems the bluest. <laughs> and then I, I decided, okay, there was an album called King Bee by Muddy Waters, and, uh, and the um, this first song I listened to was called Champagne and Reefer. It was first song, Side 2, for whatever reason. I started on Side 2. As soon as I heard Muddy Waters sing, okay... We're going, rolling. And then I heard that guitar. No, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty. That was it. It felt like I'm home. I'm home. It was unbelievable. Wow. Did I answer your question? I don't know if I did. Maybe in a roundabout way. <laughs> in a roundabout way, yeah. you did. So I've been listening the first to music since I, since I was a little, like in diapers. Okay, and then I, I believe radio is also was a big thing for you. Radio was huge because it, it was just... It was magical to me. I used to think that the bands were inside the radio. I thought, how does he get the band to start? As soon as he says, oh, here's so-and-so, how, do they, how does the band know when to start? And it was so magical that I thought when I saw my first concert, how is the band going to fade the songs out after? A, you're that young and yeah. naive, you know what I mean? But radio was magic to me so much that uh, I went to the CNE, and it was either 1050 Chum or CFDR were doing a remote broadcast. And, uh, and it, it, all my friends are going on the rides. I sat there with like a box of popcorn. It must have been for hours watching the disc jockey do a remote broadcast. And I was just mesmerized. I was just watching him play records, watching him do what he was doing. And then I went home and I created my own imaginary radio station. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah, my own radio station in my, listen, I was a kid, so you get a jail, get out of jail. Okay, what, what age? Uh, that, well, that was about 10 years old, I'd say. I had okay. my own pretend radio station. It started getting a little pathetic when I was married with kids and the wife's like, listen, <laughs> nobody can hear you. <laughs> no, I did that. I don't know how long I did that. Maybe 10 12 maybe I don't know I had a little microphone in my closet hanging off a hanger I had my own top 30 charts it was called Rock 101 was the radio station Rock 101 uh, FM Uh, what else do I remember oh yeah I even had my own ridiculous radio host name which was the Doctor of Sound. That's not bad. I, what do you think? There's worse than that. Yeah. Why didn't you use that when you finally got your radio? I show? don't know. <laughs> it's still early. I could still try. The Doctor of Sound is always around. Oh my God! You're taking me back, man. Wow. So let's jump ahead. Yes. I don't usually do this, but we're gonna mm. jump ahead. And and like a year ago, a year or ago, a little yes. over a year ago. Yes. You got your own radio station. Yes, show. I work at. Uh, I I had an idea. For a New Orleans radio show, 
eight years ago, and it was called the Gumbo Kitchen. And I went to a buddy's house. I made a little demo, and <clears throat> excuse me, I brought it to the station. And uh, at the time, there wasn't a fit for whatever reason. Uh, and then fast forward eight years later, there was uh, there was an opportunity. A, a buddy of mine was producing shows at the station, and he said, "Are you still interested in doing that uh, that New Orleans radio show?" Wow. I said, "Well, yeah." So we thought we'd try a few weeks. And at the time, the radio station was going through a bit of a change, or major change. Yes. Uh, but I didn't know anything about that. I, I, I was oblivious to that. I just listened to the station and enjoyed it. I didn't realize at the time there was some stuff uh, behind the scenes that was going on until uh, they said, okay, we'd like to try this radio show. Oh, and by the way, you might make some enemies and uh, people will probably not want to talk to you. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, just, just take look on Google. So I did a bit of research and the station was going through some major growing pains mm -hmm. and uh, it was a political hot potato. I don't know what happened when, when I wasn't there or what didn't happen. None of my business. All I knew I was going to play Fats Domino records for an hour <laughs> a week and that was cool with me. But it was definitely not the station it is now. I mean, it, now that I look back, when I was hired to work at the station, it was half a radio station it wasn't the station that it that it used to be and that it has become again it was it was an awkward time yeah it, it, but i mean i had a good time and then i got to meet these incredible hosts who came back after we got a new board and all that guys like james b guys uh, walter van afro brad barker you know heather people who I've, who've been in my car with me for years but i remember thinking okay well they're coming back that was fun. Uh, I felt like, okay, here's your seat I've been keeping warm for you. I'll show myself to the door. You know, that's why, uh, and still, I try and do the best damn show I can do every, every Friday night. Because, you know, you don't know when. You know, right. That's the end of it. Well, just like you, you, every show you do is the best show you can do. You know what I mean? We try. Yeah, a bit of fear and a bit of, I insist on putting out the best product I can put yeah. out. Um, just... So for people who don't know what we're talking about, we're not going to go into it, but if you want to look it up, just look up Jazz FM in, in Toronto and you could probably find it. Yeah, and it's ancient history, by yeah, the way. it is ancient history. Um, did you find that there were people who hated you because of this? No, okay. I couldn't believe how, how, how kind people were because I wasn't a threat to anybody. These are people that have been in radio forever right. and they would let me pick their brain, you know, hey, let me, let me ask you about this and what would you do in this situation? And uh, and everyone was really really cool. Right. So I thought I meant more like the audience. Oh, I'm sorry, the yeah. audience. Well, when I started, uh, I reached out to some musician friends of mine, saying I'd love to have you on my show. And a couple people said, you know, I just I have to I have to uh, distance myself from the station at this point. Right. And I, I thought, but I don't understand. And then I realized, digging deeper, okay, there's a lot going on here. Before I came along. And it'll work itself out, and thank God it did. Things right. are fantastic now. Yeah. And uh, oh, the shows now. I mean, I mean, sure, I work there, and I want people to know about it and, and promote the station. But th there's just all these amazing shows that didn't exist. You know, it, the timing was just perfect. I mean, I, I tried to get in there eight years ago. It wasn't in the cards for whatever reason. People always say, "Oh, uh, everything happens for a reason." I maybe it does. I don't know. But the timing was just perfect and it's a pleasure a true joy um so if we go back you, you had this love of radio mm -hmm. you had your own radio station in your bedroom mm -hmm. oh and did some college radio too right okay, a little so. bit but it's so it was hard to get into these college radio stations full-time and what, what would that show have been like oh i remember i did my first radio show and it was the, the program director called me up he goes okay you want to work here he goes it's a, it was a blizzard he goes, our guy can't make it in. So I had to come from Don Mills and Lawrence to, uh, to I guess, York University, is it? I don't know, to Finch. Yeah, yeah, York, yeah. I thought that was the other side of the world. It's it was nothing back. now. <laughs> but during a blizzard, I had to take the TTC. So I made myself about four egg salad sandwiches, went there, uh, and I just had no plan. I, it was just awful. It was the worst radio show probably ever in the history of radio because I'd play a Bobby McFerrin song and then I'd play, uh, I don't know, a B.B. King song 
and then like rock and like, there was no flow. There was no rhyme or reason to any of it. I didn't I didn't know that I should give some content, give some history on the song. Heaven forbid. No, here's a song by Van Halen because fuck, I like Van Halen. <laughs> At three o'clock in the morning. Oh, I remember I started making uh, like crazy calls, like like crank calls. Right. Right. And I'm thinking nobody's listening. It's four o'clock in the morning. A blizzard. Oh my god, the program director phoned up. What are you doing? You. It's not. We can't make crank call. I'm like, okay, so uh, we'll have a meeting. There'll be no meeting. <clears throat> I didn't hear back after that. Oh, that was it? No, I think I maybe did a couple of those, right. but that was the extent. I was like the fill-in guy, you know, but I didn't take it seriously. Okay, so... I thought I liked it. I didn't, I didn't take it seriously, and I didn't know anything. But that, but that dream still existed after, after the fact. It, it, it did, and, and enough so that I made my gumbo kitchen idea, shopped it to a few stations, and... Uh, but when people didn't bite, I wasn't crushed. It was like, okay, whatever, I tried. Because music, playing music professionally was was my thing plus right. my 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 glorious day gig you know okay so before we get to that yeah. playing music tell me about how that all started oh man well, i started playing in bands when i was 15 years old it started well i only got into it like everybody else on the planet to meet girls like basically i think that's why every guy <laughs> gets into music uh, i was in a lip sync contest in grade nine or something and this 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 kid at the school, we were just kids, but there were these guys in a rock band and they had done shows. They had played at places like Larry's Hideaway and stuff. I'd never been up in front of people before, but I did this lip sync contest. So they said, hey, uh, we saw you up in front of people. We desperately need a singer. I said, but I, I, I can't sing. <laughs> oh, you look good. You look great. You're done. You're in. Get, get, can you get a PA? So they hired me, got me in my first band. It was like a, it was like a hard rock 80s band in the 80s, that, that long hair, nightmare rock. <clears throat> and I just couldn't sing it. I couldn't do it. And uh, they knew that, but they figure it's better to have a shitty singer than no singer at all. Uh, so we did some gigs and we became best friends. And eventually I got fired from that band because I couldn't sing. We became best friends. So it was a tough thing. It's like, well, we're all friends, but listen, this guy, he can't sing. You know what I mean? Right. So from then on, I was a little crushed. Remained great friends with these guys. But then I met other guys who played music with, that was a little more suited to my thing. And that's how I found my voice. And then one day, my dear music teacher, the greatest teacher on the planet, his name is Jack Gelbloom. He said to me, Ronnie, you need to go to the Muddy York at 5 Church Street. He said, you have to go. I'll take you. Uh, so I went, I was just a kid. We couldn't, I couldn't even have a beer. And, uh, and it was Danny B in the band, Doug Riley, Whitey Cardinelli on drums. Oh, sorry. Whitey Glenn on drums, Peter Cardinelli on bass, Steve Kennedy on saxophone and Bernie Labarge on guitar, the, the dream band. And they were playing great rhythm and blues. And that changed my life. That it just blew my mind. And I thought, wow, like I can, I can play this kind of music and make a living and it's not just my imagination. People actually play this music because all my peers were playing hard rock. Right. Right? So I, I was home. I felt like I was home. I became pals with Doug Riley. And then I started forming a band with a guy named Dylan Hemming, an incredible keyboard player in Toronto. And um, we were sort of the outcasts because everyone was playing rock and roll. We wanted to play jazz and rhythm and blues. So we were hanging out with Doug and he introduced me to his son, Ben Riley. And that's when Planet Earth was born. So for those who don't know, although I think Doug's name has come up a few times because he was such an amazing musical person, that whole band was top-notch studio musicians. Oh, yeah. And they basically did that gig, I presume, just because they loved to play. Yeah. Making a bit of money, but it was for love that yeah. band, yeah. Um, but we're talking like top-level session musicians, all of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. So w what did you learn from seeing them? Uh, well, I, I learned that uh, people can be receptive to great music live. It's possible. This isn't just something that I hear on the radio and see on TV. These are actual people I know. And I, so I can do this. I'm not saying I'd ever be as good as them, but uh, I could try. <laughs> but it also taught me watching uh, their singer, Danny B, how to interact with an audience. You yeah. know what I mean? I learned so much from Danny. Uh, and and uh, and so we started playing the Muddy York um, the night after they played. So they play Wednesdays, we'd play Thursdays. Planet Earth, 
And so one night Danny came out and I, I joke, I jokingly said, oh my God, Danny B's here. Now I can't tell any jokes on stage because I was using all his, <laughs> all his material right on stage. But yeah, and then, I, and then one day uh, Danny went to British Columbia for the summer and uh, they, they were going to have guest singers up every Wednesday. And this is, you know, when you're young and green, only to be this naive. I gave them my demo of me singing. It wasn't even Planet Earth at the time. I think it was called Fathers and Sons. And I gave them the demo. I said, hey, if you guys have trouble finding a singer, like as if they would have any trouble <laughs> finding a singer. These guys playing, play with the best singers in Canada. Yeah. Hey, guys, you know, just in case you can't find anyone, I'm, I'm available. And they were like, okay. And then I'd start phoning, going, hey, did you, did you get a listen to my tape? No, why? Uh, a little busy. Didn't get a chance. Okay, I'll call him a couple days later. Hey, did you did you listen to the tape? If you need a singer, like just like annoying. I think they almost got a restraining order. <laughs> Not really. But then finally, I guess looking back now, they said, let's let's let this son of a bitch up to sing a couple songs so he'll get off our back. So I got up and I did a couple songs, and I'll never forget. I got up with those guys. I I did it. Like I made sure I did a good job. And uh, I think they were pleasantly surprised. Oh, you know, he can, he can actually do this. But I remember being on that stage, and when they countered in the song, I'll never forget, it was Randy Newman's song, uh, You Can Leave Your Hat On. Mm-hmm. And uh, dun, 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 dun. I never heard a band swing like that that I was part of. And I felt, this is going to sound like a cliche or a little hokey pokey, but I felt like I was levitating, like the stage was rising. It was unbelievable. And another thing that blew me away on the stage that night was all the bands I had been in up to that point, it was guys just like looking at our instruments and looking down at our feet. And you know the song, we start at the beginning, I'll see you at the end. There was no room for for improvisation and there was definitely no communication on stage. None, like you didn't communicate. So I remember Steve Kennedy, there was the song, dun, 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 and I went, baby, take off your coat. And Steve Kennedy went, dun, 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 on the horn. And I think Whitey or someone went, yeah, you know, just what guys do when someone <laughs> plays a cool look. Yeah, man, that freaked me out. These guys are actually talking on stage. Like, I, it's the most normal thing, but that's how young and naive I was musically. Like, and it was, it was like, it was like being in heaven. I, I can't explain it. Just to, to hear Steve Kennedy or one of these guys say, yeah, or I'd sing a lick and they'd be like, yeah, right on. Or, like, oh my God, this is it. Yeah, yeah. This is where you're supposed to be. This is what it's all about, right? Well, I can't, I can't imagine being on stage with that, the caliber of musicians that you're working I with. I don't think I slept for days. Like, it was insane. I brought my mother. Like, yeah, bring your mom down and let her... <laughs> It's like when I met you. Did you tell me you met BB King? Yes, I met BB King. I didn't sleep for days. Yeah. Oh, just yeah. So you know the feeling. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like, yeah. But okay. So when you were in the hard rock band and singing and not doing a good job. Yes, I couldn't sing that stuff any better today. By the way. But how did you maintain the idea of you still being a singer when you weren't executing well in that environment? Sure. Yeah, I met a guy. His name is Ed. Ed Cooper. We're still dear friends. And he was a little bit of an outcast, okay? And he had a guitar, an acoustic guitar. And we were at school, and I would skip class. And I'd see him skipping class. I'd say, hey, uh, I went up to him. I said, uh, do you know any Beatles or something? And he, he knew he has this mathematical brain where he just remembers everything. He works for the Houston Rockets now as a, a stats guy. That's wow. how mathematical this guy is, right? I majored in mouth, not math. But this guy, he's like, oh, yeah. And he just remembered. I just say the song. And it was like I had a jukebox in front of me. I'd be like, uh, things we said today. It just, and it just blew my mind, right? So I got singing with him, and we would sing in the stairwell at the high school. So the, the reverb was fantastic. So it made you sound a little better. And that's how I got comfortable. And then he said, oh, I can also play piano. And I just kept singing with him. And he wasn't great, and I wasn't great. And we just got better and more confident. And then him and I put a band together doing music that, oh, I can actually sing this stuff, you know. So, that, and that, so thank God for him. Because if I hadn't have met him, uh, I probably would have got out of music. Well, probably be better off. <laughs> so, I don't know whether to blame him or thank him. So, but music is your passion. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Planet Earth yes. was a funk band. It was funk. Funk soul, yeah. And it's, uh, it was, oh, God, when did we get together? Late 90s. 
and we played at the Orbit Room on College Street. We were the house band there for over 10 years, you know. And when the Dexters, they were the, the weekend house band, Friday, Saturday, when they couldn't play there, we'd fill in. So we'd do Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. And the place was packed. The floor would literally shake when mm -hmm. people were dancing. Oh, man, great club. The Orbit Room. So at this point, are you thinking that maybe I would become a full-time musician? No, you know, because I always, I always had a, a, like a day gig. Always. Since I was a little kid, I always, not a little kid, but a teenager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paper route, working in a, a convenience store. I always had a job. Even when I was coming home from school, okay, I got to go work in the convenience store. I never fully said, okay, I, I quit everything. It's all music all the time. Uh, there was a period when, you know, we made we made about four records, great CDs, mm -hmm. great reviews, and I put everything into it, uh, but I didn't, it wasn't like, okay, it's, it's this or nothing, which is, I find anyone you ever speak to who is extremely successful in music, that's the attitude that I find they take is, well, I have nothing to fall back on. Right. Right. I didn't I didn't I didn't go that way. I said, no, 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 uh, because it was also a time when Napster was coming out hmm. and the music business was changing. It was kind of circling the bowl, for lack of a better expression. And I guess I kind of sense like things. Uh, I, I just didn't trust it. I just I knew one day I'd want to have a family and uh, I have no idea what would have happened at the time if I'd given it. A hundred percent, but uh, well, sorry, I did give it a hundred percent. It made some incredible music, right. but it, I always had something to fall back on. And I have friends today who are musicians, and they'll call me up and they'll go, "Hey, uh, so that uh, place you work at, are they hiring? Because things are getting slow." And I know with music, it's either feast or famine, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I always had a little thing to fall back on. Thank God, you know. The thing that you fell back on. <clears throat> is an interesting thing. Yeah, it's, I've had two very strange careers. Well, a bunch of careers, but you're talking about like the healthcare yeah. side of things. Yeah. So tell me about the other one because I don't know about it. Well, there's the, the healthcare and death care. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so sorry. So how did you get into that? Uh, again, um, it's funny, the paths, so... I can do the lineage here. So my music teacher told me to go to the Muddy York. Right. That got me into music. At the Muddy York, I met a guy named Tim Rutledge. He's currently the CEO of uh, St. Michael's Hospital and a few hospitals uh, that have amalgamated. Um, but at the time, he was the chief of the emergency department at North York General. But he plays saxophone, a, a monster saxophone player. So he, uh, I heard him one night. I got his phone number. I said, my band probably needs a saxophone player. I hired him to play with Planet Earth. I knew he worked in an emergency department. And in between sets, we'd get talking. And he'd tell me that he's the chief of the emergency department. And I thought, man, that's a really cool job. Uh, I would love to, you know, uh, down the road in another life, maybe I'd love to get into healthcare. And he said, well, listen, we just opened up a position at the hospital in the emergency room, which is a nurse's attendant. He said, give me your resume. You seem like a nice enough guy. Uh, I'll give it to the boss of the emergency who hires. And he said, but you're on your own after that. He goes, I can't tell them to hire you. They're yeah. going to look at your background. How old are you at this point? At that point, maybe 20. Okay. And, and so you had no other plans? Like no, you... I, I was, it, at that point, it was, it was all music. Right. Music or nothing. Uh, and I was in and out of jobs, running free, as the song goes. And, uh, and so I got the job at the hospital as a, a nurse's attendant. So I was doing that uh, during the day and night shift and playing music. So a lot of the time I'd get out of my scrubs and run to a gig and like run directly on stage from the emergency room. It was quite a juggling act. And then from there I got into ambulance dispatch, you know, dispatching ambulances. Right. And then from there, I got a job at the Ontario Forensic Pathology Service here in Toronto, which is uh, pretty interesting, to say the least. So when, when you, like the emergency room is an amazing place because you're dealing with some really severe issues. So where's that? The emergency room. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. When you work in that environment, because, you know, I, I've been there a few times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, when you deal with people in a hospital or even any first responder, mm. it's amazing to me how 
amazing they are to, you know, deal with the situation and calm the situation down. Yeah. What did you learn from that experience? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, one thing I learned was how incredible our healthcare system is in Canada. That's number one. Uh, and you know what? It was, it was a backstage pass to real life, basically. Yeah, yeah. Working in the emergency. Uh, you met people... Um, you realize it doesn't matter how how much money you have, how little money, your race, you know, anything. It doesn't matter when you're when you're sick. Like you, there's no hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Like same as when I uh, my my other job, the coroner's office. I mean, when when it's over, it's over. It doesn't matter how much you worked, how hard you worked, or what you thought, how much money you had in the bank. It didn't matter. But I I got to work with some incredible people at North York General Hospital. The nurses were just, it's just unbelievable. And one thing that blew my mind, I remember, obviously I can't give specifics, but I remember uh, somebody came in, a patient, and this patient was a criminal, and he had just committed a hideous crime. And the staff knew this. I think he had murdered someone or something. I don't even, it, it was to that degree. Right. But the nurses and doctors are trying to save this guy's life right and i remember thinking like it takes a heck of a person to be able to do that they're all looking at him i'm sure thinking this guy is the most disgusting human being on the face of the earth but i have to save his life you know what i mean yeah like that's that's uh that's some pretty pretty intense stuff and also the fact that you you realize and I, you know in the in the few times that i've been there um i was exposed to how quickly life can change you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think I went in with an abscess once and the person before me had gotten in an accident and they were never going to walk again. You think, my God, mm-hmm. just one little incident. Oh, man. And you deal with that on a constant basis. Oh, yeah. So how do you walk away from, how do you deal with that on a daily basis and then go to the gig? I, I think it's called Prozac. <laughs> <laughs> no. You'd have to talk to my therapist about if I'm dealing with it. I don't know if I if I do deal with it properly. It's funny that, that well, the job I have now, currently at the Ontario Forensic Pathology, uh, you see, you know, the, the unimaginable. Yeah, yeah. So when I became a father, um, I, should, I feel like I should be lying on the couch for this conversation. I'm not sure if you're going to walk away any better, though. <laughs> no, but uh, w- what was your question? I'm sorry. So when when you go through that, like, how do you, like... How do you go to a gig and deal? Like, how do you deal with all that and then just go to a gig? Yeah, you you kind of you try to leave it at the office. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have always said, I don't know how. Oh, I have heart surgeons come to my gigs. Not surgeons. A heart surgeon came to a gig once, and he said to me, "Man, I wish I could do what you do." I said, you're a heart surgeon. You save people's life. Ah, but man, I just wish I could get in a band and get up and, and sing tunes like that, man. I totally envy you. I'm thinking, well, you can have this job, brother. Like, the, if I'm lucky, I'm getting 100 bucks tonight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not about the money, right? No, 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 no. It's nice. Because it's always, it's always an interesting thing of the fact that you do what you love. Mm-hmm. Um, but many people do it. And they just don't make enough money. Yeah. And then you think, well, how selfish is that? Or does that really make sense if you're not eating well or living well? Yeah. Um, but you found a way because you've always loved your music and you've always played. That's the outlet. Yeah. Right? Is the music, the radio. And, uh, you know, maybe I hug my daughter a little tighter because I see the things that can happen in the world. I see how horrible people treat other people and how they treat themselves. You know, uh, like I said, it's a backstage pass to life. I thought the emergency department was a backstage pass. Working at the the coroner's office, I mean, you really appreciate every day. I'm sure. How how did you decide to make that decision to go to the coroner's? Office? Uh you know what? I I uh, I saw that they were hiring. And nothing exciting. I saw that they were hiring, and I thought, oh. I don't know if I could do that, but I'm going to apply, and I'll never forget the job description. Uh, my wife was like, "Are you are you sure?" Like there were there were things within the job description. Uh, it was public, so I can say it. But things like must be able to deal with putrid odors and decomposing corpses. And 
Ah, uh, yeah, sure, I can do that. You know, hey, it's better than listening to Steely Dan, for Christ's sakes. So, I had to throw in a Steely Dan. <laughs> you don't like Steely Dan? Oh, we're going there. <laughs> Let's talk about Steely Dan. Can we say fuck? We should yes. say fuck. Uh, I don't need to say fuck. You know what? I don't know what it is about Steely Dan. People, there's been a little like an inside joke. It's gotten bigger and bigger with myself and Steely Dan on social media. I would poke fun about Steely Dan, saying, "Oh, uh, my buddy won uh, second prize. Uh, he won. Uh, he won two tickets uh, to go see." Uh, Steely Dan third prize was four tickets or whatever the, the joke is but uh, you know it's it's not so much the music I find the fans the, 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 the diehard Steely Dan fans oh my god they're like <laughs> Bruce Springsteen fans and I love Bruce Springsteen right, right, right. and I, Rush I get fans it. you yeah, know yeah. what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about but it's just I just picture and I don't want to offend anybody I picture white bald men in Birkenstocks <laughs> that's what I think of when I hear Steely Dan or just going to the dentist for a root canal. I don't know what it is. But that first Steely Dan album I really like. What was it called? Can't Buy a Thrill? Yeah. That's yeah. an amazing record. It is an amazing record. And people say, well, you should listen to, to, to Asia and, and, and Gaucho. See, I know all the names. I'm like, nah. And I've tried. Man, I have sat there and I have tried. It just seems contrived to me. And they take, the, in my opinion, okay, the Steely Dan... Uh, took the worst elements of rock and roll and the worst elements of funk and put them together. That's okay. just my opinion. Okay, and I don't, fair. I don't hear the soul in there at all. That's just me. I know I'm missing out. Oh no, I, I mean, I'm missing out. Different. I know. I've only met maybe one other I, Planet Earth, for example. Everyone in that band loved Steely Dan. Okay, so let's talk about Planet Earth. Mm. Well, let's talk about funk. Yeah, let's get off to Steely Dan because you no, want no. people to listen to this. <laughs> No, I think everybody's entitled to their opinions. That's something you don't like. Let's talk about something you really like. Yes. And funk and music from New Orleans is what you really love, I presume. Yes. Oh, yeah. So tell me about funk. Tell me where it comes from. And what I find interesting is there's a lot of good funk bands out there. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're not a lot. I mean, I'm sorry. There aren't many. Yeah. There are a handful of really great funk bands right. who are known for it. Yeah. But it's not a genre that, you know, could have... You can't really have a funk festival and have, you know, three days full of funk bands. Yeah, because right? half of them would... Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if they get the respect, but when you see something like Dumpster Funk or... Yeah, I, I was just going to say Dumpster Funk, to me, are the epitome of current great funk. Yeah. Like, they're just... They just nail it. Yeah, you know they're what ridiculous. I mean? Yeah, they are insane. Uh, so... Uh, but we, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, because it, it is a genre that doesn't... There isn't a lot of bands doing it. The few that do, do it really, really well. But mm -hmm. there's a certain limitation, Oh yeah, I think. Yeah. Did you feel that with, with your band? Or did you face that with your band? Uh, with Planet Earth? Yeah. I was very fortunate with that band. We were like brothers. And we played every week. So we got so tight that we didn't even have to look at each other. And so we would do our own music. And we would start at the beginning. And we'd meet at the end. But everything in the middle... There was a lot of improv. Right. I mean, we would do the Street Beater, which was the Sanford and Son theme, sometimes for 30 minutes. And it, it never sounded the same ever. It was the most incredible band. The horns, would, someone would come up with a line, and we would all just get on that line, and we would just beat it into the ground, a horn line, like George Clinton kind yeah, of yeah. thing. And, uh, and then that was, there was some, that was some funk. There was some great funk in there. Um, but yeah, it's it's very rare. I mean, and, and do you I'm think very... it's a harder sell? Is it, sorry? Do you think it's a hard sell to be in a funk band? Uh, I think it's, I think it's almost too easy. I know I know of a lot of bands who oh we're in a funk band and people think oh they play funk and they like to throw the word around, but then when you listen to it, there's no dirt under the nails, there's no grime, there's no nothing greasy about it. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just kind of slick and you know. Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know? I don't know. Are they funk? I, they have their moments. But there's yeah, different yeah. types of funk, right? That's not my sort of dumpster funk. It's that dirty funk. Like, funk is It's supposed to smell. It's supposed to give you that face like there's a skunk in the backseat of the car, right? Yeah. And that's what dumpster funk means. It smells like a dumpster. I asked Ivan Neville on my show. He said, it's that face you make when you're behind a dumpster 
or a, a garbage <laughs> truck and you're stuck in traffic and your windows are down on a hot August day, that face you make, and that's funk. Now, if you can make people make that face with your music, then good on you. You know what I mean? James Brown, like, yeah. it doesn't get any funkier than that. So why did that band end? Who's that? Your band, Planet Earth. Uh, why did it end? It just kind of dissolved. I got married, and we were still together, uh, and then I had a daughter, and uh, it kind of had just reached its course, you know? Uh, and what's that, what's that feel like? I mean, I presume you always go into a band knowing that you're not going to last 40 years like sure. some bands. It uh, wasn't like we sat around and said, okay, that's it, we're done. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just kind of fizzled out. I had my daughter, and then the music became less of a, of a priority for me. Uh, the band wanted to tour at that point, which we had never toured. But uh, suddenly I have a daughter, and, hey, let's go on tour. And I said, guys, you know, not to be rude or anything, but my bags have been packed for the last 12 years, and we haven't made a move. Now is not exactly the best time. And I think there might have been a little bit of uh, bitterness you know, if you yeah, don't yeah. have kids, you don't expect people to understand, you know. I was like, sorry, man, like, life has changed a little bit. I can't just go on the road. Uh, but I didn't quit playing music. I met this incredible guy from Montreal, uh, and uh, we did this thing called, now this is, he, he insisted, because he was the guy putting the money together, hiring the musicians. He hired me, he sent me this music in Montreal, and he said, it's going to be called the Funk Embassy. I thought, ugh. That's a little presumptuous, the funk embassy. How do we make this less presumptuous? I know. We'll call it Ronnie Littlejohn in the funk embassy. So I put my name in front of him. Anyway, he was paying me to write songs. He let me hire the musicians in Toronto. And uh, we put out this album called Shining On. That's right when my daughter was born. Oh, man. So I, I didn't stop playing right, music. Right. I've never stopped. I still do it. But I did it more of like, oh, I'm going to do this now for fun because I enjoy it. Uh, not because, okay, I'm doing this because I want to be a, I want to make it, you know, the old make it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about that make it. Was there a time when you, that's what the goal was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we could taste it. We were opening up for bands. We opened up for, for Maceo Parker and we got on some great stages, great festivals. The crowd would go nuts, but it was always just impossible to get any interest from labels like nobody was interested it was either you guys are too uh funky or you're too you're not could you be more of this could you be more of that and we just said well we're, we're not going to change we produced our own albums nobody ever produced an album for us for better or for worse i mean we played the glenn gould studio uh here in toronto uh filled the place it's, i think it's only three or four hundred people mm -hmm. but we recorded a, a double we recorded the show and we thought well let's make a live album and if we had been with a label, they would have maybe said, okay, well, we'll put out an album. But we were our own bosses. We could do whatever we want. So we made it a double live album. Planet Earth, Live at the Glen Gould, a double live album. How cocky can you get? You know what I mean? <laughs> but we would, it sounds fantastic. And I mean, it's, it's the, it was just, uh, I'm so proud of that, that time. So is, is Funk Embassy still around? No, this was just a one-off oh, thing. Okay. He, it was a guy in Montreal who sent me... Um, uh, some music and it was his dream to make an album he's in it you know he's an it guy and it, he just said uh, i saw an ad looking for a singer who can put lyrics and, and melodies to my my rhythm and blues soul funk music so i thought oh god nothing good ever comes out of these ads but i reached out he sent me this great music which was very similar to the planet earth stuff that i had been doing right and oh it was just perfect you know because i don't i don't play i, I play piano well enough to amuse myself. But if you had a piano here right now, you would never get me to sit at the thing. You know, I play a few open chords on the guitar. So I've always relied on musicians to give me music and say, okay, write something to this. And that's what he was doing. He just kept sending me music and music. And uh, every time I wrote the song, he'd, he'd send me a check. I'm like, hey, how long can we keep? It was like the dream. <laughs> like, I'm going to call him after this interview and say, hey, can we do a double album? A little short on cash. <laughs> But it was the dream. It was like someone paying you to do what you love. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to go back. Yes, sir. To the radio. Yes. Which you, is my love. So tell me about that love. Oh, man. I, I tell you, I am so blessed and fortunate to have this little radio show in my corner of the world. Friday nights, 
9 to midnight, the Gumbo Kitchen, Jazz FM 91. Uh, it started as an all-New Orleans show. Right. And it's still pretty much an all-New Orleans, Louisiana, South um, theme. Uh, but it's not just New Orleans. Like, I branch off occasionally and play, you know, soul music and stuff from, from there. But it's just such a thrill because I get emails from people every every week. I got an email from a guy a couple a few weeks ago who was on the, 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 the cruise ship where people were quarantined for the coronavi- coronavirus. Oh, he was stuck on that ship with his wife. And he said, we're locked in our room and we have our computer and we're listening to our show. Can you play some traditional jazz? I said, coming right up for you, brother. Played him a bunch of like Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong. Like that's, that's the stuff you can't, yeah. uh, you can't, you can't make up. It's just, that's a dream. Stuff like that. So if people want to hear your radio show yes. on Friday nights, mm-hmm. um, 9 to midnight Eastern Standard yes, Time. Yes, Eastern how would they go about here? Well, they just go if they're in Toronto or the surrounding area. So Jazz FM broadcasts 150 kilometers off the CN Tower in every direction. So we get pe- we've got a lot of listeners in Buffalo. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's just uh, 91.1 on your FM dial. Or they can go to jazz.fm and just click listen. Uh, there's all these other things. Uh, tune in radio, I believe, yeah, yeah. is one. Uh but yeah, that's that's the big one. Tune in radio, jazz.fm, or just the good old radio. Well, it's amazing how it can. I mean, it's it's cool because I I thought there might have been a like a geo block because I don't know how they deal with the royalties. But yeah. the fact that anybody somebody quarantined on the ship. Oh, it's and, unbelievable. And well, yeah. that's the beauty, right? Yeah. Now with the internet, people. I, I got one from Nunavik, uh, Colorado. Emailed me last week. Say hey, I'm listening to your show. Like, love it. And and people in New Orleans, that's that's when I get really excited. Yeah, yeah. When people in New Orleans email me, say hey, we're we're streaming the show. These are folks that could walk out their backyard and turn the corner and hear this New Orleans music in their backyard. But instead, they're tuning into to my radio show. I mean, that's that's amazing stuff. I love it. So it's three hours. Sometimes you do interviews, but mainly it's music. Yeah. Tell me what goes into producing a show. Uh, well, it used to be one hour. When I first started, it was one hour. Was it 7 to 8 p.m. on Saturday nights? And then uh, they asked me to do three hours. It's a lot of work. Yes, please. I'll do it. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of work, I think, because I, I care so much. And there's a guy on the station, Glenn Woodcock. He's been there for, I don't want to get it wrong, uh, 40 years maybe? More than that? A long time. Yeah. And what somebody, I heard someone say to him once, I've never heard you phone in a show. And I thought, that's that's what I want to do. I don't want anyone to say, yeah, you, you phoned that one in. So I've got the next two weeks, the shows are already, not in the can, but I have an idea what the theme for the show will be. Okay, so how does that happen? Okay, well, with the thing is, a lot of people think music, uh, the music of New Orleans belongs you know in a in a museum they think of a a marching band walking down the street or a, a dixieland band yeah. playing on a steamboat i mean it's that but it's there's so much more as you know dumps mm-hmm. the funk galactic there's traditional jazz there's the mardi gras indians there's the new orleans soul music there's all the new orleans rhythm and blues from the 50s so within three hours i try to cover all of it if i can every week Every week. Okay. So when I had my one-hour show, it was tricky because I don't know how many songs you can squeeze in in a one-hour show. It wasn't a lot. So I do, okay, I'm going to play three traditional jazz songs, three f- New Orleans funk tunes, three Mardi Gras Indian uh, things, uh, three brass band, and then the show's over. But now I got three hours so I can stretch out, I can branch out, I can do interviews, you know? So it depends on a mood. I mean, okay, this week, let's start the show off with a like West End Blues by Louis Armstrong. And but that's how, is, is it, does it usually start off like, what's the first song, or do you? Yeah, usually I'll, I'll think of a song, or I'll hear a song, and I'll say, okay, this should be on the show for sure. Uh, but it always starts with, oh, this should be the beginning. This is a great first song. And then what's a great next tune? Uh, and I try and make it just flow. It just, uh, so you, 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 you get taken on a little ride, but you don't realize... Uh, like, it's not a harsh, abrupt thing where we just went from, like, uh, Indian Red 
to uh, Galactic or, or, or West End Blue. So you don't, it, you're not going to get a case of the bends, you know, like when you're scuba diving. <laughs> it's a gradual flow. I had a lady email me once. She said, your selection of music and the way you take people through your show, she said she doesn't want to go to the bathroom because she's afraid of what song she's going to miss. I'm like, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Lady, it's called a catheter. <laughs> get a catheter. Do not turn off the radio. Okay, so the kid who was, in, who was doing that radio show on a very snowy night at York University, who just, just oh, man. barreled through songs, whatever you want to. How did you wind up figuring out the flow, and how did you figure out how to navigate your way through this radio show? Well, the kid uh, at the university, he didn't know anything. He just liked the look of the microphone and liked the idea of it, people listening to his voice and having to listen to whatever he wanted to play at that given moment. Uh, I mean, that was a long, long time ago, and I've had access to great radio brains at the station and I've listened to a lot of radio since then uh, but little tricks of the trade that, that guys at the station uh, talk about like and we're big at the station we're huge on content right huge on that we do a thing at the station called the, the, the song of the day uh, it's at 8:30 every morning Monday to Friday and it's it's put on by hosts of the show of the station sorry and uh, you pick a song but the song isn't as important as the content before it, like giving a story like this is why I'm playing this song because the singer did this and this is the story behind the song. And I did, I bet you didn't know that when they were recording this, this happened. Uh, and I find when you give people content, they lean in to mm -hmm. the radio, they lean in, go, Oh, and then they hear the song. They go, I never knew that. That's amazing. And, 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 and so the kid back in university, there was no content. It was like, here's B.B. King, because I said so. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, My heart was in the right place. Yeah. I had the radio love and passion. But, uh, you know, I had radio people say to me when I was shopping my, my gumbo kitchen eight years ago, uh, it, it not, we, we, we like content. And I didn't know. I remember thinking, content. What does that mean? The music content. One more. I didn't know what they were talking about. Now I fully know. So when I do... I, in three hours, I might play about 45 songs, between 35 and 45 songs within a show. That's a lot of music. That is a lot of music. So I research just about every song. Every song. Okay, this is when it was recorded. This is who the producer... Here, try and find an interesting story about every song so that I can, I can announce, okay, here's an amazing story. I don't do it for... I don't announce uh, the story right. for every song, but it is, it's an incredible amount of work. And, and it's, it's great fun. But I presume some of that work has been done throughout your whole life. Yeah. This is the love of the, the New Orleans music that you yes. had from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I interviewed uh, Ben Jaffe from the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And uh, like he said, he said, the music of New Orleans, I feel, is more vibrant now than it's ever been. There's just so much stuff. And uh, I'm going back down there soon. I'm not sure when this will air, but I'm going... Uh, April 2nd to 5th, we take a bunch of donors from the station. It's called a Jazz Safari. So that's what we're arranging now. So 35 wow. of us, yeah, we do it. Uh, we're going to Washington, D.C. But I'm not going to that one. We just went to Berlin. Uh, I'm going to New Orleans. And we went last year. And it's 35 of our donors. And they, because uh, it's a listener-supported radio station, right. a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, there is no boss. The listener is the boss, you know. Um, so we're taking 35 listeners down in New Orleans for three or four days and showing them a great time. I mean, what radio station does that? I don't know of any. So, I know that you've been to New Orleans like every yeah, year for the last 15 or 20 years. times or something. Um, tell me about the first time you went there. The first time I went, I went, uh, my mother had passed away uh, and I went down there on my own and I said, I'm just going to go to New Orleans, a place I've always wanted to go just to get away. And I don't remember the date but I remember what was happening on that day uh, that was the day the United States invaded Iraq uh, the, the, the second time so what was that 2002 three, 2004 I don't know right. something like that I don't know if only there was some kind of technology that could tell us the answers to these magical hmm. questions but anyway that was the first time I went and um I remember getting there and I phoned out. It was just, I went to the French Quarter. I said, this is 
unbelievable. I phoned up a friend saying, you got to get down here. I said, nah, what, it's your thing. It's not my thing. So I'm walking down the French Quarter, and, you know, I was going through a phase. You know, everybody goes through their photography phase, right? Well, I was going through mine. I had this really nice, expensive camera, and I was on Canal Street, and it was getting a little seedy. Have you been to New Orleans? Yeah. And it was a little seedy, okay? this is It changes before. like that. It does, and it was before Katrina, and a lot has changed since then. Uh, but it was, it, I was in this really questionable part of town, but I saw this newspaper box and in, in the cover of the newspaper, it said America at war. And that's, I didn't know that they had, had invaded Iraq because there was no internet. You didn't see anyone yeah. posting anything. It was the cover of the newspaper. That's how or you, or you buy the newspaper. That's how you got your information. It said America at war. And behind that was a band playing on the street with an upright bass player and a saxophone and people are dancing. And I thought, what a, an amazing photograph this is going to be. I am in a country now who are technically at war. I mean, I don't know how many people can say they've been in a country at war. Not a lot of people. I sure had never been. And uh, I thought it was going to be amazing photo. So I crouched down with my expensive camera. I'm trying to get the photo of this, this newspaper box. And it says America at war with the band in the background. It's going to be great. But it's a main road, like Young Street in Toronto, kind of. And people are walking by. So it's taken me a long time to get this shot. But I'm determined, like a photographer should be. And I suddenly feel the presence of this, this, this gentleman uh, a few feet away. And he's looking at me. And I'm trying to be, you know, conscious of my surroundings and my environment. So I'm thinking, oh, boy. And I've heard all these stories about New Orleans and watch where you're going. So now I'm getting very cautious. But I'm, and I'm getting frustrated. I can't take this photograph. America at war. It's going to be, uh, should I give up on the shot? And he comes closer and closer. And uh, he comes up to me. And I kind of look at him, put my camera down. And I say, hi. And he goes, goes, sir. And he reaches out and he gives me a quarter. He says, I'll buy you the newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was my first day in New Orleans, my friend. That was the first person I spoke to in New Orleans was a, 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 a scary-looking homeless dude coming up to me. I thought he was going to steal my camera. No, he just wanted... He thought that I was going to take a picture of the newspaper so that I could develop the picture to read the front cover. I don't know what was going on, but what a sweet guy. Yeah, that, really. was, that was a long way to go to answer your question. That, that was my first time in New Orleans. So was oh, God, it everything it was you thought it would be? Uh, oh yeah, it was. It was more. It was. Yeah, it was unbelievable. There was a singer there named Marva Wright. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever uh, were familiar with her, and she just played on a, in a little blues club on Bourbon Street. And it, I didn't know enough about New Orleans then. I thought that that New Orleans was about uh, Mardi Gras beads and uh, and staggering down Bourbon Street, which is what a lot of people think New Orleans yeah, yeah. is, which it is not. I, I don't go to Bourbon Street anymore when I go to New Orleans. Um, but then I did. I found this little blues club. It was called The Blues Club. Very creative. And there was this lady named Marva Wright. And I just used to sit and listen to her do set after set. And I remember I said to her, you know, God, like if I could ever fly you to Toronto to get you to play at a festival, if I could get you to my town so they, these folks, these friends of mine and music fans could hear you, uh, anything I can ever do to, for your career. And she's like, I really appreciate that. And I became friends with her and her husband. And then she, she died, sadly. And then years later, I got this show. And uh, it meant a lot to me when I got to play her music on my radio show. Because I remembered saying to her, if there's ever anything I can do you know, to promote your music... And so now I get to play all these incredible artists from New Orleans who people otherwise might not hear... And I go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Like, I found so many musicians I didn't even know existed. They're sending me music. I play it. They're telling all their friends in New Orleans, there's this guy up in Canada playing our stuff. Because there's a lot of people in New Orleans, they're perfectly okay with being successful in New Orleans. They don't care. Yeah, yeah. The guy's got a radio station. Trying, uh, who cares? I'm good. I Like Kermit Ruffin, see, he doesn't care. You know, I, I reached out to him going, hey, Kermit, listen, I got, I'd love to do a radio show. And can you do an ID? Just saying, this is Kermit Ruffins. You're listening. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He never sent it. He doesn't care. And I've seen interviews with him. He's like, no, I got my, my bar. I got my gig. I barbecue before I play. What more is there? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you, you got to kind of love that. But a lot of the folks down there are sending me music. And, yeah, it's it's a long answer to whatever the hell you asked me 20 minutes ago i know <laughs> oh what do you think it is about new orleans that's so unique that oh, the music man, is it's, a, it's magical 
It's just magical. And you know what? It's funny. People have asked me that question and I can never fully, I'm never happy with my answer. It's, I, can, I can't verbalize what it is. I have people say, oh, if you went to New Orleans, you'll love Nashville. I don't think I would because everyone I hear talks about Nashville says, oh, and the, the, you get the street and all there's, there's all the bands on the street and you go to in the club and there's three levels and three different bands. That sounds like my nightmare. It sounds like yeah, yeah. my nightmare. Um, New Orleans, is, it, it's got a lot of ghosts. You can feel it. Like it's just, it's got so much... See, there I go, character? I don't want to see it's got character. But that's the worst thing. I can't explain. You, you need to go. It's yeah. just magic. And uh, I guess maybe it's not for everyone. But every time I go there, I mean, man, I've even got a ghost story. And I don't even believe in ghosts <laughs> in New Orleans. Oh, do tell. Oh, it's a long, it's a long, long story. <laughs> okay, so when you go in, in, in a few weeks, are yeah. you the host? Are you? Yeah, I'm going with James B., James B. is the originator of the Jazz FM uh, International Jazz Safaris. Uh, so they're taking me down uh, because I know the city. James has been there 30 times. And uh, yeah, so we're taking the host. We're showing, going for dinner, taking them for some music. It's going to be a blast. So you are a host. You're showing them yeah, around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's a great city. Great food. Oh, man. Last time I went to New Orleans, I came back. The food is so good. I came through customs in Canada, and they said, you're bringing anything back. I said, yes, diabetes. <laughs> <Ba-dum-pum>. <laughs> That's how good the food is. It's unbelievable, man. Yeah. My feet, I can feel it swelling. Feel them swelling. <laughs> feel, it, feel my foot swelling. No, it's not. The diabetes isn't that bad. But I can feel my feet swelling in some <laughs> restaurants. You're like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> oh, man. And there's a different speed in New Orleans. Everyone's on a totally different speed, you know? It's, technically, it's like part of the Caribbean. They say it's the northernmost point of the Caribbean, you know? They say mm-hmm. it's the deep south, but no, technically, it's the northern point of the Caribbean. And that's how the food is, the music, you know? You were talking about what is it that makes a great funk band. And, there, and there's something about... The music of New Orleans, and it goes back to Congo Square, when the slaves were allowed to sing one day a week and be themselves in Congo Square, and they would just open up and let it out. That just goes from from generation to generation. Like you can't you can't fake that stuff. I could put a, a half-assed funk band up here in Toronto together and say I'm funk, but you play it for for Ivan Neville, and he'll just play. Eh, nice try, kid. I mean, I mean, you're good, but <laughs> not that he would say that, but. I, I just have a hard t- when you're when your music when you go to New Orleans and you hear that music, you're almost damned a little bit because everything else is like ah it's good but damn it's not that it doesn't have it doesn't have that New Orleans thing you know what I mean that, yeah yeah but what do you think that is though I I think it's just uh, I think it I asked who did I ask? I asked Terrence Blanchard that question what is it about the music of New Orleans and he said it goes back to Congo Square it goes back to the slaves coming out once a week, being allowed to sing and dance in Congo Square and people watching it and it just being passed down from family to family, generation to generation. Okay, so having said what you said about funk music, Mm -hmm. can you see yourself ever putting together another funk band? And if you do, could it ever live up to that? It could never live up to... No. I mean, I listen to... I listen to my old records with Planet Earth, and I'm thinking, man, that's pretty, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. But I guess everybody, I mean, everyone is their own worst critic, right? Yeah, yeah. I think sure, so. Yeah. I never go, there it is, you nailed it. I don't think anybody ever does that. <laughs> no. You know? I mean, my favorite singers in the world are like Sam Cooke and Ray Charles. I could never listen to myself and go, oh, listen to you, you got it. You know, you're yeah, always, yeah. when, you're, when you're, your heroes are Sam Cooke and Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and and Louis Armstrong, you know. I don't know. Maybe I look at it all wrong. Maybe I should look at it uh, differently, but I'm a little hard on myself. Well, would you ever, like... like I would play. I'd put a band together, yeah. Yeah. I would Uh, love to. Maybe you should really go down to New Orleans and jam with a... Uh, You know what? I've been there so many times. I I haven't sung a note in New Orleans. I haven't played with a band there. Never. There's a guy down there named Papa Molly, and he asked me to come by and sing some tunes... Uh, we're going on the steamboat Natchez with our with our guests and Kevin Ray Clark is the trumpet player plays in the Dukes of Dixieland he asked me to get up on this trip but you know it'll be like a song but uh, that's I think where the the boys are separated from the men I think in New Orleans when it comes to the music you know well, what I mean but you did the Muddy War- York thing 
I did the Muddy York. And that kind of changed I'm life. sure I'd go down there, and I, if I put a band together, people would dig it, and it would be cool. But I would always be like, ah, it's only going to be a matter of time until they figure out, till they catch on. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Until they're all going to figure it out. <laughs> this guy doesn't know. Get out. You don't know what you're doing. Well, I think you've done pretty well for what yourself. What was the Woody Allen thing where he says, I would never want to be a member of a club that would have someone like me as a member or something? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It makes me think of that. And listen, I'm not saying I'm like a shitty singer. I know I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hell of a singer. I can sing. But when I listen to how it's really done, I grew up listening to gospel music. The best singers and shouters ever. And it's hard to take yourself seriously when you've grown up listening to that. So maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, it keeps you humble anyway. Well, maybe to a fault. <laughs> I want to thank you for doing this. Thank um, you. Thank thank you so much for having me here. My last question to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. This is where I'm supposed to start crying. I I'm surprised it. you haven't cried yet. Uh, I'm crying on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> what has music given you? From that kid who had that Paul Anka album, you know, and, and felt the meaning of music and the power of music. When you look back, what has music given you? Uh, I would have to say an outlet. I've seen a lot of, uh, of horrible things in my life. Uh, and this is, it's given me my sanity, I think, and my outlet. Because if I didn't have the outlet of singing, or I didn't have this outlet of putting out a radio show every week, I think I would get bored and then I would get into trouble, I think. Do, do you think, sorry, one more question. Yeah. Do you think the two things, because mm. they're different, to play music, yes. Uh, um, playing other people's music on record or whatever, yeah. and sharing that, yeah. versus playing your own music and sharing that. Yeah. Maybe it's not different. Is it different to you? And it's still performing, you know. It is and it isn't. It's a really good question because when I'm doing my show, I, I it just it's it's so fantastic. I love it so much. But then once I'm on stage and I'm singing. Like that's that's physical. Like that's coming out of your soul. Yeah. So it's com- yes. Now that you ask me, it's completely different. When people are actually moved by your singing, because listen, right now what I'm doing is I'm putting together a, a, a list of fantastic music that I didn't create. Yeah, sure, I'm responsible for the flow of it and giving you some entertainment and telling you a bit about it, and hopefully you'll tune in because you'll like my choice of music, but. There's no thrill like people coming up to you uh, saying, I got into music because of you, yeah, yeah. which I've had. So, yeah, it's two different uh, sides of the coin, for sure. Well, yeah. thank you for doing this. And party. music has let me meet amazing people like you, sir. This is it. Right? That's what it's all about. And the people that I've met. Yeah, yeah. And the sure. conversations and the stories and the humor, you know? I mean, I God only knows. I th- it just brought a lot of joy. And I, I think there'd be... Uh, it'd be kind of sad without without music, I think. So thank you for doing what you do, my friend. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. I yeah, just, man. I feel very lucky to do All that. right. The check thank is you. in the mail. You make a great psychiatrist. God bless you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>